You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. This is Culturally Determined, and I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade. And my guest today is Sarah Jones. Sarah, could you introduce yourself? Hi, um, I'm Sarah Jones. I'm a staff writer for The New Republic, where I mostly cover politics. Um, thank you for coming on today, Sarah. Uh, th- the reason I wanted to talk to you is because you wrote a really interesting piece on kind of the media controversy of the week, which is about Kevin D. Williamson. Um, and we're going to talk about some of your other pieces as well. We're going to talk a little bit about Stormy Daniels and pornography and how that's connected to the First Amendment, um, mm-hmm. the teacher strike in West Virginia that ended uh, a couple weeks ago, and also whether there's such a thing as Twitter feminism. <laughs> um, so why don't we start, so for, maybe if you spend time on Twitter, you've, you've heard about this controversy, if not, perhaps not, but can you kind of explain for people who aren't aware, uh, who is Kevin D. Williamson? Why are we talking about him? <laughs> right. So Kevin D. Williamson, he's a conservative commentator, a roving journalist, I think, or was his exact title at the National Review. And he's written for the National Review for a really long time. Um, he's written a few books as well. Um, and then the Atlantic recently announced that they will be hiring him as one of their new ideas columnists. And um, that took a number of people a bit of, by surprise, including myself, um, because Williamson has, has said some fairly extreme things in the past. You know, a lot of people, including myself, have made much of um, some now-deleted tweets that he wrote about abortion and the appropriate punishments for women who get abortion. Uh-huh. Um, but he's also written a lot of, like, very violently anti-trans material and some some passages that can can be reasonably uh, interpreted as racist. Um, yeah, so he, he deleted his Twitter accounts. Um, he says that it was for Lent, um, <laughs> but that also lines up with all of his tweets disappearing, um, you know, a couple weeks before he got hired by the Atlantic. Yeah. Um, so the, the one that has people most up in arms is about abortion, and you can correct me, it's something like someone was asking him what the proper, you know, if abortion was made illegal, what the proper penalty would be for women who... Uh, got an abortion under that regime, and he said something like, uh, "Hanging would be nice." Or, yeah, he said, "I have, I have hanging more in mind." Right. Um, so, yeah. So, <laughs> what if you? I mean, in some ways, so so Williamson, like his persona is kind of like he's like the like hard cynic asshole. Mm-hmm. of, like, the conservative intelligentsia. That's kind of the the role he played. So he, like, won't, you know, he won't sugarcoat it, and he tells it like it is, that that type. And actually, he um he was on Blogging Heads a couple times uh, in 2011, and I, when this um, controversy popped up, I, I looked in my email to see if I'd ever, like, exchanged emails with him, and I hadn't, but I did um, have a conversation with... Um, a fellow coworker, which I was saying that if we had him on again, we needed like a liberal who was like a real asshole to like go up <laughs> against him because he was, you know, someone who's kind of, uh, you know, kind of keeps it friendly and doesn't go for the jugular. Wouldn't be a good pairing with him. I suggested Matt Iglesias at the time. Um, <laughs> I would that, see that. It, it never happened, and he was he was not invited back on. But yeah, I, I, he's one of the few people to where like I had a specific memory of of him being 
extremely off-putting just through like his public interactions on on blogging his yeah. TV. So I mean, yeah, what do you what do you think of that about like that aspect of it? He just kind of like telling it as it is, and this is like the real conservatism, not like beating around the bush with what conservatives really believe. Yeah, so I mean, when his hire was announced, people made much out of his abilities as a writer and as um, his mm-hmm. sort of intellectual abilities, but he's essentially just a troll. Um, he can be an eloquent troll upon occasion, but he is a troll. That's the that's the function that he served for a very long time. Um, and I think his writing, as venomous as it often is, um, really taps into something in the conservative movement. Like he says some, some pretty horrific things by any objective standard. And yet you can see that the conservative movement is not generally too upset, um, by anything that he said. It certainly didn't disqualify him from earning any of this admiration, um, for his abilities as a writer and a thinker, which I think is, is particularly telling. Yeah. Um, so some of the other things he's, the, the, you know, the case against him, he said that Bernie Sanders advocated for na- national national socialism or nationalism socialism. So kind of like a joke on, you know, the, the Nazi party. And uh, he said uh, that Laverne Cox had like mutilated herself and wasn't really a woman. So, yeah, but, but the, I mean, the other angle of this is that he is a never Trumper. Mm-hmm. And there's this weird dynamic where the people who run the mainstream like opinion journals in this country who we take to be largely like center left mm-hmm. um, just have this real soft spot for the never Trumpers, despite the fact that the never Trumpers represent like two to 5% of, of the country at most and probably, probably less than that. And I just, yeah. do you understand, do you like have any thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me because, like you said, they don't really have a constituency. <laughs> um, they have a constituency maybe inside the, the Beltway or in parts of New York City, but that's it, really. And I think it's just sort of become this standard for what more mainstream outlets consider to be an intellectual conservative. Um, you know, at least at least you'll criticize Donald Trump. That seems to be how it goes. Um, and the actual substance of their views is frequently not all that far removed from things that Trump has said or um, from things that some of Trump's more noxious allies have said. But, you know, they'll criticize Donald Trump. And so you get someone like Kevin D. Williamson at The Atlantic. Yeah, or B- Brett Stevens and Barry, Barry Weiss Stevens, at, the, yeah. at The New York Times or, you know, Megan McArdle, who's more of a libertarian than a conservative. Yeah. Um, was hired by the Washington Post opinion section recently. Yeah, it's just, it's just so, like, the thing that would, like, really challenge, like, the liberal readers of the Atlantic, the New York Times, would be, like, someone making the, like, affirmative Donald Trump case. And mm-hmm. since 45% of Americans voted for him, surely they can find a couple of these people out here in, you know, this great country. Um, and the fact that it's just these never Trumpers who, yeah, they, they have no, they have no like popular support They're mm-hmm. it, They're just like an irrelevant, totally politically irrelevant wing of the GOP. And like, yeah, I, 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 I can't explain it. Yeah. I, I think that there's this sense that they know enough to know that if they actually hired a pro Trump columnist, that individual is probably not going to meet their editorial standards. Mm-hmm. And they are, they aren't generally willing to go, that far that you did have the times 
um, turned its section over to like letters, I think, that have been sent in from Trump supporters, which is pretty close. Um, but I, like, you're just not going to find a Trump supporting columnist who's going to meet probably the standards of the Atlantic, or at least that's what I thought. And then they hired Kevin Williamson. So who knows at this point where the line is? It's, it's getting increasingly difficult for me to discern if any of these publications have a line at all. Yeah. I, I almost wonder if like the, the affection that, and, and, and uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor of the Atlantic released, like and it, there was an internal email that he wrote about this that got leaked um, in which he was like, you know, I, I often disagree with him, but I find his writing fascinating and like this kind of thing. It's almost like the, the liberals in power want to believe that conservatives like and conservatism is like better than it actually is mm-hmm. and that like the true intelligent conservatives like they can see through trump but they have like their own coherent ideology and sorry mm-hmm. my, my cat just jumped up and um and this is kind of like you know trumpism is like an aberration and doesn't mm-hmm. isn't the real conservatives because like I, I know conservatives i went to college with them and they're not that bad so that it's like well, maybe it's a way of like kind of fooling themselves that yeah, these Donald Trump isn't the real conservative. You know, uh, Brett Stevens is the real conservative when all the evidence indicates it's the opposite. Yeah, it, it's like it supports the sort of Sorkin esque view of the world that they want to believe. Where you know there are reasonable people across the aisle, and you can reach across to them. And of course, like I'm personally very far to the left, so. I, the way I look at it sometimes is because they don't actually diverge from conservatives that much on certain issues. Um, and so there's this drive to like, see, see, look, like there are reasonable conservatives too. Um, but it should be obvious at this point that the, the mainstream conservative movement talks a lot like Kevin D. Williamson at this point, mm-hmm. no matter how much he criticizes Donald Trump. And I'm not sure how you can reason with people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, so they, there's been the backlash online, um, and, you know, people threaten to cancel their subscriptions. That kind of always happens when there's something controversial, but yeah. it's hard to know if that, if people are actually going through with that. Do you, do you think anything's going to happen? Like, do you think there, Williamson's going to bow out or anything like that? I don't see Williamson bowing out. Um, I don't see Jeffrey Goldberg apologizing in any way for hiring Williamson. Um, I think it would depend on what might come out about Williamson. Um, so I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, Goldberg is in a very tough position and he's put the Atlantic itself in a very tough position. It's not clear to me if he actually even knew about those tweets. I'm going to assume he did because they caused quite a controversy at the time, but, um, it just seems like something, something has to give something that it feels not sustainable to me. Like I can't imagine that this decision has gone over particularly well with a lot of people who work there. And I'm not basing that on, you know, information from sources, sources. It's just a hunch. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I really don't know what's going to happen next, but I would not expect Williamson to be like, you know what? I'm just going to bow out and go back to the national review. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, I kind of I I don't see him going quitting voluntarily because he's his persona is that of like you know the, a hard ass and um, he said in his farewell post at National Review that he was going to like continue raising hell and that you know he obviously sees himself as like a shit stirrer. Um, yeah. 
Uh, but it will be, I mean, it'll be interesting to see you if he, if he does say what he actually produces mm-hmm. there and w- whether it'll be the same kind of stuff as before or if he knows he has a different audience now and, and changes. So yeah, and there does seem to be some kind of under, like kind of murmurings on social media that there's like some personal stuff about him that, that might possibly come out. Um, but I have no way of knowing whether that's, going to happen or that's just weird rumors i've heard those rumors um and yeah i i don't know yeah i they're they're fairly long-standing at this point um and you know during the me too movement i think we've seen that often where there's smoke there's fire but i don't have anything concrete and i hesitate to go much further than that yeah um so why don't we move to talking about um Another another name in the news, um, and that's Stormy Daniels. Um, you wrote. Uh, I would actually, you know, maybe the the um, the connection here would be like I I, I bet uh, Kevin Williamson could write an inter- interesting profile of Stormy Daniels. Um, <laughs> there, there might be like I don't think he's like a, a hack or anything. Like I think he has some talents. But um, what you wrote about Stormy Daniels and. Um, pornography and how pornography has intersected with the First Amendment throughout American history. Uh, can you talk a little, little bit about that? Right. I mean, America has always been a fairly conservative country, um, with fairly conservative sexual values. And I think because of that, um, purveyors of erotica, pornography, at times like even just sex education or information about contraception or abortion have therefore been at the forefront of pushing the issue of free speech in this country. And I, I very much see Stormy Daniels as fitting into that tradition in her own specific way, um, because she is essentially fighting for her right to speak freely about something that happened to her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so this seems to be the story, like seems to have a new little twist happening every day. Um, but the latest is like, the uh, the, law, the lawyer Michael Cohen uh, is claiming now that he did not inform Trump at all about dispersing the payment associated with the uh, non-disclosure agreement, and people are wondering if that means like he could possibly be disbarred because he was like acting on his client's behalf without informing the client. So I don't under- I don't I have no <laughs> real <laughs> ability to judge that, but. Um, yeah, it's it's really weird, and you know, I was wondering, like, is it possible that this case could somehow like change the way we view like non-disclosure agreements because that's something that powerful people or organizations often use to silence people. And I mean, it's it seems weird to like voluntarily give up your right to say something and then have that the enforcement of that ultimately backed since you know the state is the like guarantor of of contracts you know, to have this, this, the state ultimately threatening you um, about your uh, free speech rights. So I, but I, I, I didn't go to law school. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, is there some well, way that NDAs could be found to be unconstitutional? I also didn't go to law school. I think, though, the specific situation with the NDA, it also harkens back to the Me Too movement because we've seen the way that NDAs can be used in a really abusive and manipulative fashion um, to protect the powerful and, and harm people who, or who, who don't have the same level of power. And I think we see that again in the Stormy Daniels situation. 
Whether or not there can be anything legally done about NDAs, that's not necessarily an area of expertise for me, but I should hope um, that that is a question that more people start asking, and if that is, you know, a possibility, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, it's super... It's super screwed up that you could, you know, like take a job and they, as a requirement of employment, they make you sign an agreement saying that you won't, you know, speak about it. Uh, so you go, what happened during your employment afterwards? That seems un-American to me. Um, yep. So can you talk more, a little bit more about the history of like how, like, the pornography and things that were, con- <laughs> things were considered pornography today, things that were considered pornography back in previous eras um, ended up like strengthening First Amendment um, guarantees? A little bit, yeah. So, I mean, the Comstock laws are a really interesting way of looking at that. Um, They censored a lot of material that we would these days generally find pretty harmless. So, you know, not just erotica or even information about contraception, which, um, but, um, you know, and some anatomy textbooks. There were restrictions on how you could go purchase them. And this was all, of course, disseminated through the post office, you know, um, so it became more difficult to mail certain textbooks or certain pieces of information to people. Um, and it's a pretty clear, we would call it clear evidence of government overreach. Um, that is not generally how, I mean, some people did view it this way, but it's certainly not how Comstock himself viewed it or how his allies in, in government viewed it. They viewed it as, you know, they were protecting society from moral decay. Obviously those laws didn't stand forever. Um, but we've generally seen, um, attempts to censor or restrict pornography, and then we see pushback on that in various various cases throughout the years. Um, and generally, pornography eventually eventually wins out. Um, so yeah, it's it's always kind of been pushing the barrier of what we consider to be you know the limits of free speech in this country. Like you might find certain speech disagreeable, you may even believe that it's going to decay the moral fabric of society. But you know, can you really go so far as to ask? the state to step in and limit what people can actually just send each other through the mail. Um, and generally we found that the answer is no. So mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, it's a fascinating tradition and, you know, obviously there are a lot of differences between that and, and the Stormy Daniels situation, but you know, kind of just the fact that someone in the adult, a sexual girl who's, who's, who's working in adult films is engaged in this fight for free speech. It doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, and it it somehow does seem like, um, you know, if if there's like a, a an author writing a script of the life of Donald Trump, like having someone like Stormy Daniels being the one who can bring him down seems like too too perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, there was just a, an article that ran in the Times today that was like, uh, there's a special election in Arizona because. Um, the congressman there, I think it was Trent Franks, was ousted because he was doing bizarre things like asking a female member of his staff to be a pregnancy surrogate and offering a lot of money for that. So there's a special special election, and they they quoted some um, local Republicans and asked them if the Stormy Daniels stuff had affected them at all. And, you know, people were saying things like, well, you know, she's just the type of woman who can't be trusted and mm-hmm. the the quote that I thought was just absolutely amazing was a woman said, you know, she's just doing this to get on a reality TV show, but, you know, I, I hope it's not dancing with the stars because I'll stop watching it. <laughs> Truly, it's quite a burn. Um, <laughs> I don't, I, I really don't think she's worried about that. Um, she's <laughs> her own platform. 
Um, but yeah, there is something, you know, perfect about the fact that Donald Trump, who's the showman in chief could be taken down by an actress. Um, but yeah, it doesn't surprise me that, that she's, she's been so intransigent about it and it's been so courageous, frankly, at various points in this, in this kind of very public legal battle. Yeah. And what's, what's, I mean, what's, yeah, her courage is admirable and her frankness is admirable. And she, I mean, one of, this has been written about, I can't remember who wrote the piece, but comparing the, the, the lack of shame between Trump and, and Daniels and, you know, Trump, one of Trump's secret weapons is that he has no shame. He'll do anything. Um, you know, he'll mock a disabled person. He mm-hmm. will, um, you know, just, you can't shame him into, into saying things like, you can't say, Mr. Trump, this is unpresidential. He doesn't care about that. And he's been able to exploit that successfully. And then you have, you know, a adult film actress who, uh, doesn't care if someone on Twitter calls her a whore, you know, she'll like retreat that with a joke. So they do seem almost like perfect, you know, perfect combatants. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, she has less power than he does. She's had to develop a really thick skin. I mean, even if she weren't in adult films, if she was just a woman out in the world, let alone a woman on the internet, um, it generally helps you cope with things. If you can, if you can throw a bar back from time to time. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else you want to say on Stormy Daniels? Yeah, it's, it's in a lot of flux, so it's kind of difficult to know from day to day what there is to say about it. Um, but I, I certainly, I'm watching it closely and, you know, she, it's, it's worth remembering as well. Um, she's not the only woman who's pursuing legal action against her. Of course, many women have accused him of sexual assault and can get at least one of those lawsuits. For defamation is going forward, and then I think he, uh, Kara McDougal is also pursuing legal action against him, so. Yeah, yeah. I know a woman named Summer Zervos, if I'm, I'm yeah. not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was, uh, on The Apprentice and accuses him of, um, forcibly kissing and groping her, and then, uh, defaming her by denying it and calling her a liar. Uh, her yeah. lawsuit was allowed to go forward, um, in this past week. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's multiple, multiple, accusers and multiple storylines to, to follow and who knows where, where it'll go. Um, so a couple, uh, was it, it was last month, right? It was, it was March. No, sorry. It was February when the, um, cause it's March now. Yeah. <laughs> it was February when the, there was a uh, teacher strike in West Virginia and you, uh, cover this in the new Republic. Um, it got, it got some co- like national coverage, but there was a lot of people saying like, why are we not hearing about this more? Um, some of that is like the, the Trump circus always seems to cry out anything else. Um, but I think by kind of by the end of it, people were starting to pay attention to this. So um, wh- why do you think this is an important story right now? Right. I mean, there are a lot of different angles to it. I mean, Jim Justice is the current governor of the state of West Virginia. He's also the richest person in the state. He flipped parties from Democrat to Republican, and he's very fond of reminding people that he is friends with Donald Trump. And, of course, this is a state that Donald Trump won heavily. Um, so there were already a lot of national angles to that. Um, is West Virginia the state that he won most, like, lopsidedly? It might be. I can't actually remember that off the top of my head. But it's definitely he won very comfortably there, for sure. Um and then you have um, this teacher walkout, which definitely didn't happen overnight. The organizing had been going on online for months. Um, 
there had been isolated walkouts in the southern coal counties a few weeks before there was a statewide walkout, but um, it, I think it was definitely the first statewide teacher strike in the in the state's history, which is which is worth noting on its own. And they achieved not all of their demands, but a good number of them. And right right now, at least, it seems like kind of one of the most lasting implications has been that it's inspiring similar teacher protests in other states. So teachers in Oklahoma are planning to walk out for at least one day next month in response to similar problems, underfunded school, low pay. Um, A lot of schools in Oklahoma only meet four days a week because they're so strapped for funds. It's a really dire situation. And while all this has been going on, um, the state of Oklahoma at least has been funding voucher programs, um, which, you know, that money comes at the expense of public schools. Um, so they're protesting. Teachers in Kentucky were also um, sort of threatening a walkout. It seems like they have actually killed killed the bill that they wanted to kill. We'll know for sure tomorrow. Um, but that was a successful example of, of direct teacher protest. And a few, a few counties, including some of the um, coal counties in eastern Kentucky, actually did close school to allow teachers to go to weekly protests in, in Frankfurt. Um, teachers in Arizona had a sick out recently to protest their own conditions there. And generally when I talk to people in these, in these states about, you know, why are you walking out? What inspired you to do it? Of course they have their grievances, but West Virginia, the example of West Virginia always comes up and it has, people have directly cited it as inspiration for them deciding, you know, a walkout might actually be feasible, a way of achieving their demands. Um, and I think that's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. This was like a wildcat strike, right? It was a wildcat strike for one day. So okay. that essentially means for anyone watching who doesn't know what that means, it just means um, that the rank and file are, are striking kind of um, without the approval of leadership. And, you know, that happened one Thursday in West Virginia. And then union leadership and rank and file were back on the same page after that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's... You know, that's kind of interesting because, I don't know, I mean, there hasn't been, there, this is the biggest, like, labor action in the U.S. I can remember in, I, I don't know how long, like. In a while, yeah. Yeah, there hasn't been, like, you know, the, such a small percent of the population belongs to the labor union and it's most, always, you know, I don't know if more than half, but a large chunk of it is um, federal and state and local employees mm-hmm. and teachers are obviously, um public employees. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, there were, there was like a New York city transit strike, like in the mid aughts that I recall, but really no other ones are coming to my mind right now. Um, yeah. So I, I this is just, I, I think it's inherently significant and interesting, but it does make me wonder, like, is the union movement, like are public employees really the only place where the union movement has any sway anymore because so few work, you know, workers at private companies belong to unions is, can can that, do you see that changing at any time soon or what do you think? I know some union um, organizers that I've spoken to are hopeful that it will encourage more people to join unions now that they've seen what a union can accomplish when there's high membership density in a particular sector, um, it's too early to know if there's really going to be a bump in unionization after this, but I do think it's a possibility. 
um, is definitely something to watch. Um, I think it's also worth remembering too that there is a lot of labor organizing that happens outside the kind of the auspices of our traditional union, like domestic workers organizing, um, farm workers organizing. Um, so there's actually a lot of, of labor movement going on at the moment. It just doesn't always happen in traditional ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, and the, one of the plate, <laughs> the few places that seems like right now where there is like forward action in terms of unionization is among, uh, journalists and those who write for online places. So like the, just today, the onion and the onion V club, um, announced that they were going to unionize and yeah, that's just kind of interesting, even though it's, it's a, like a very small, uh, num- number of people compared to most other industries. Yeah. And who knows, you know, maybe that will lead to more labor coverage at, at a lot of these national outlets now that their own members are unionized. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we hit our last topic, which is uh, an essay that you wrote a couple months ago about, uh, Me Too and Twitter feminism and the, whether it not or not it exists. And I think you said no. Um, it's kind of, you were reacting to essays written by people like Katie Royfe, Andrew Sullivan, and Caitlin Flanagan, um, where they kind of saw Twitter feminism as like a threat and you were objecting to the, the, the term they were using. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I would certainly never deny that people can be prone to excess on Twitter or any other platform. That's definitely true. You know, we don't see as many like coordinated pylon campaigns as we used to see on Twitter um, but I don't even think that, you know, the historical existence of those, those instances really points to the existence of Twitter feminism. It seems like the term itself is a way to depoliticize um, the criticism that they're receiving. Um, you know, it's very easy to dodge criticism if you just sort of tell everyone, uh, you know, my critics are just this mob, they get hysterical, they just pile on people, you know, it's a way to refuse to engage with the substance of what people are actually saying. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, it, it seems to me like there's, there's a new energy that, um, you know, Me Too unleashed or kind of, maybe it was there already and that just kind of brought it to the forefront of um feminist action and um people who and a lot of these people also do spend time on twitter and are on the media in, in the media so like the thing where nicole cliff offered to pay for um you know uh reimburse people who had articles at harper's who wanted to withdraw it because um Katie Royfe was rumored to be uh, mm-hmm. about to out the maker of the shitty media men list. And actually she outed herself like later that week. Um, so that was kind of like a kind of social media event. And it probably it wouldn't have happened in the same way if, if Twitter wasn't there. And there's just been a lot of other kind of stuff like that. So I, I, I whenever there's like Twitter mobs mentioned, I think, to to the uh, so you've been publicly shamed book by 
oh, his name just went out of my head. Um, Ronson, right? Yeah, John Ronson. Um, and, you know, the social media pile on, like, is a real thing, and mm-hmm. um, it can happen to people on with of any political persuasion. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to deny that when it's, it's clearly happened. Um, but yeah, at the, at the same time, it's yeah. not, it's not a, like, it's not a, a mob of people. And as far as we can tell, like everyone who has become the focus of some kind of action because of me too, like is guilty and deserves <laughs> deserve some kind of punishment after like skating by for years or decades. So I'm not like, yeah. I'm not like fearing the, the witch hunt. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, I, I think it's always wise when we're thinking about these issues to be wary of a witch hunt, to, to think very critically about the way that we're going about addressing these problems. I think that's, that's fair and good and we should be doing that. Um, it's just there, and I'm generalizing, and I, I admit that. But I would say that generally, when there are long-standing rumors about an individual, um, and they they recount the same sorts of stories over and over and over again, generally, in my experience, there's something to that. Maybe it's not exactly as reported, but like something is is generally going on, and, and people resort to these sort of whisper networks because they don't have power in other respects. And generally, the, the 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 subject of those rumors does have power that you know the people whispering about him doesn't have, and that's why we have the situation that we have. That's why it's so lopsided. Um, and I think we've seen it borne out over the course of this movement and reporting being done that you know usually people are are onto something. Um, and I feel like pieces like Roy Fees are are trying to minimize that in a way just because. Maybe people express themselves sometimes in a, in a crude way or in a way that um, is sometimes aggressive. Um, maybe we should think about how we express ourselves. I, you know, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Um, but Katie Royfe's central objection seemed to be that anyone was criticizing her at all, <laughs> which I don't have a great deal of patience or respect for. Yeah, it, it is. You know, it is remarkable how. A lot of these people just turn out to be like giant babies, and yeah. they can't like they can't take the heat, and they've been like cosseted and protected for so long, and then um, you know one of the salutary effects of Twitter is like if you say something really stupid, like you're going to hear about it, and yeah, yeah, there's a system of immediate checks and balances, and I think too like. When you've been told for a very long time that you are a brilliant writer and a brilliant thinker, you eventually start to believe that. So when people like poke holes in that, you're like, well, that can't be true. Um, <laughs> so hopefully that, that doesn't happen to any of us and we stay humble. But I think that was part of it. Like they've, they've been in this lofty position for so long that it just seems completely bizarre to them that people would say the sort of things that they've said about their writing or their arguments. Yeah, and I'm I'm a firm believer in the ratio. And for people who aren't on Twitter, that's when uh, someone tweets something and they get a, a lot more replies than they get retweets or likes. And if you look at the if the ratio of replies to retweets and likes is very high, that means this is like a very stupid opinion because yeah. only when people are only like stirred to reply to something 
when it's when it's really bad. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I'll like it or retweet it. And I've seen some established writers, like uh, even people I like, like John Chait, who have said that, like, oh, the ratio is this is just nonsense. But like, I haven't seen it. I haven't been led astray by the ratio yet. Like, if you <laughs> if, if if like thousands of people are replying to something you said and it only got um, twenty three re- retweets, then you, you you said something stupid. Generally, yes. There is one exception to the ratio rule, and that's the alt-right exception, also known <laughs> as the Gamergate exception. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> other than that, yeah, yeah, it's generally a pretty good sign that you have stepped in it majorly and should at least, like, take a step back from Twitter to think about what you've done. <laughs> you know, I've, since the election, I've really noticed, or stopped noticing a lot of, like, alt-right action. Like, I, it really, I really do wonder if, like, a per- what percentage of it was like bots or trolls? Because I used to see this stuff sometimes, and there were a couple times where I got retweeted by a conservative, and then because I have a Jewish name, I got you know the anti-Semitic stuff. But like in the past year or so, like I just really don't see that. I see kind of the regular conservative stuff, but like the Pepe mm-hmm. stuff, I just see it like way less. Have you have you noticed that? I definitely the Trump. Lovers are still there, um, and they will be very aggressive. Um, the Ben Shapiro fan base is real on Twitter. Um, but as for, like, people explicitly identifying as alt-right in some fashion, you know, some of them are still around, um, but I think they've migrated. They've started to migrate to other platforms. They're on Discord or they're on Gab. They're not on Twitter quite as much. Yeah, yeah, that might, I mean, that, that might be part of it, that they just, they just move somewhere else. They haven't, like, gone away or were, were Russian, <laughs> Russian figments to begin right. with. Um, I think those are all the questions I have. Do you have anything else you wanted to say about the Twitter feminism Me Too stuff? Yeah, I mean, I would just remind people, and I'm certainly not the first person who's pointed this out, but I just think it's good to keep in mind that there were a lot of, of stories that didn't receive the same attention and didn't receive the same coverage, like domestic workers, like nannies or housekeepers or farm workers who would be sexually harassed or assaulted in the fields. Um, we did get some good reporting on that, but it didn't just didn't receive the same attention as like the harassment of women in media or the harassment of women in entertainment. And I just hope that we don't forget those women and, and their stories as we go forward and we think about the issue of sexual harassment. I think it's, you know, if we forget those stories, we're, we're very liable to forget the fact that this is still a story about power and who has it and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Sarah, thanks so much for coming on today. Uh, if people are interested in your work, where can they find, find out more about it? Uh, I, you, you can look at my staff page on the New Republic just look for my name and you'll have all my articles. And I am unfortunately on Twitter a lot. Um, <laughs> And my handle's at one Sarah Jones. Okay, so we'll, well, links to those things will be uh, below the video. Um, so uh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you to all of our viewers and listeners. You know, you can subscribe to this or any blogging edge show on iTunes. We are on YouTube as well. So uh, check us out in those places, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. 
There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.